Kiwi Florido is a friend of mine since I was in diapers. She is currently a PhD candidate at Harvard School of Public Health and doing research for Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Her field is translational medicine with a focus on aging, cell death, and metabolism. The aim of her research is to address neurodegenerative diseases and disorders like Alzheimer's and dementia. Kiwi has established herself as a successful Filipina scientist in one of the world's premier institutions. She has quite a lot to share with us. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Kiwi, thank you for coming on my podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Grammy. Thanks for the invite. Uh, for the benefit of my listeners, do you mind introducing yourself a little? Yeah, absolutely. Um, where should I start? Um, so, hi, everyone, I guess. I'm Kiwi Florido. I am currently a um, PhD candidate at Harvard University. Um, within the Biological Sciences and Public Health PhD program. Um, I study stem cell biology, which you'll probably hear more about during this podcast. How is it that you have uh, that you have the unfortunate affliction of being an acquaintance of mine, a friend of mine, rather? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> unfortunate. Um, well, unfortunately, we grew up together since we were in diapers. Uh, <laughs> as embarrassing as that sounds, but yeah, we 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 go way back, Graham. Um, yeah, you're basically a big part of my childhood, and we parted ways during high school. So, you know, yeah. we're lifelong friends. Yeah. Lifelong, and um, actually, this is the, the podcast for me is one of those things that I use as an opportunity to catch up with old friends and you know, uh, satisfy that uh, millennial need to be perpetually productive. Uh, so uh, in, in that vein, do you mind uh, helping me chart a course from, uh, you know, where we parted ways in high school to where you are now? Like just, you know, if, if broad strokes would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I'll do my best. And then, you know, I'll probably you'll probably find that my journey is a bit tortuous. Um, towards the end here. But anyway, after parting ways, you know, after graduating high school, as you might already know, I left the Philippines to pursue my undergraduate studies in California. And I graduated um, college at like 19. So that was pretty young for like the American standards. But um, right after college, I took a road trip with my family straight up to Boston um, to start my stint at Harvard. Um, and this was really where I first, um, you know, took a deep dive into research or stem cell biology in general. So then I worked for um, for uh, a, a lab under Chad Count's laboratory at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute as a research assistant for a couple of years. It eventually ended up in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> Who knew, right? But I there in Cleveland, I pursued a master's in human pathology at Case Western. And then upon completing my master's, went back to Harvard and eventually started my PhD at Harvard. So here I am today speaking speaking to you. So this is <laughs> y'all. Yeah, I love uh, I, I love how uh, you know you you talk about it like it's it's, it's just a, a, another day for you. However, like these are like a terribly uh, this is a terribly long and difficult journey, as I'm sure. So yeah. uh, I'll ask the question that my my listeners probably want me to ask is what is the experience like of coming from a third world country? like the Philippines and going to America. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a loaded question right there. You know, I mean, I think every kid who comes into the U.S. as an immigrant have all sorts of feelings and unique experiences. You know, my experience might not be the experience of, like, say, another Filipino immigrant um, coming from coming straight from Cebu, you know, or something like this. But um, it, it was interesting. So I, I feel like my journey towards the U.S. was sort of unique in a sense that I was an international student um, in all sense, but in paper. Um, and I say that because I was already a permanent resident of California before I even permanently moved to California for college. Um, and, you know, before moving there for college, I also spent many, many summers and many holidays in California. So as you can see, you know, like it's sort of like I got to know the culture and the place and got acquainted and really try to fit into society before I even fully made the move. Um, but as all immigrant children experience, you know, obviously coming from a third world country, there are pros and cons. There's like a lot of good things about being in the U.S. You know, it's a first world country. You can do whatever you want. There's a lot of opportunity, right, um, which is, you know, definitely something to, to recognize that we don't really have in the Philippines, right? Um, would I have gone into stem cell research had I stayed in the Philippines? Probably not. I would probably not have never, you know, had the opportunity to do so. Um, so um, in addition, obviously, I faced, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome in the beginning where I looked different from other kids. Um, I stood apart. And I think part of this, you know, I, I really want to share this moment, actually, because there's this there's this memory that. I don't think about often, but it hits me now because my mom and I were walking in a mall one time and I just realized people kept staring at me and I just felt so weird. And I, and, and suddenly I had to ask my mom, I was like, why is everyone staring at me? This is just weird. It, like, is there something in my face? And then my mom looks at me and says, you know, it, you know how when in the Philippines, we all stare at foreigners or Caucasians because they're so unique and, and you know, they, they, they look different, right? And she goes, this is the same as you, but you're now in their country. And, and that hit me because, yeah, I was the, I was a kid that was different this time around. And, you know, back then I was, I don't know, I was only like 16 when I was in college. I was like, okay, like that doesn't make sense to me. Why would they look at me if I'm different, you know? Um, but obviously race and culture played a part in that. And I learned all about that in college. And um, yeah, like, so th those are some of the challenges, you know, just pondering on things like, how am I different? Should I try to fit in? Should I go against the grain? There are a lot of questions that I definitely have thought about, you know, in my own time. How do I say this? Like, I always like to ground uh, the podcast in yeah. what the Philippines is to the person who I'm interviewing. So uh, you being the, you know, well, you, I would consider where you are right now an incredible achievement. Like in my podcast with Ray, uh, uh, you, uh, who's another classmate of mine, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, a, a classmate of ours, rather, uh, we talked about you, Kiwi, and we sort of said to each other, it's like, we sound hilariously unsuccessful next to Kiwi. You're a doctor and I'm a lawyer from a third world country. And then there she is off in Harvard. Woo! Wait, I uh, hear that, okay? So, so, so I'm glad you didn't say anything else because I listened to that podcast. Had to listen to the episode. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but 
what it, so that, that but that raises an interesting question though right like uh, the the uh the the, the self esteem issues aside uh, what is the philippines for you now considering that you're very much set up in the us yeah i think it's a great question um you know i have to say it, it this idea definitely evolved throughout the years that i've lived in the us and you know in the beginning, I've I've always said I'm 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 going back home. You know, I can't I can't stand it here. It's just I was homesick, and you know I miss my family, all my nephews and nieces. You know, they're in the Philippines. Um, but today, as I look at my career trajectory, I think you know obviously things change, but the Philippines will always be home for me. Um, and it's it's a part of my identity. Uh, you know, my dad always said, "Be proud you're Filipino. Be proud you have you know Filipino heritage in you," and and rightfully so. You know, it's it's I can't deny being Filipino. You know, um, and and it's it's definitely a part of who I am today as a scientist. I think a lot of my ways and like you know things that I do, the way I think sometimes, it's very Filipino. Like you know, so it's it's definitely home. It's a part of my identity, and and. One day, uh, you know, it's it's always a goal of mine to to go back to the Philippines and sort of give back to society using whatever resources and you know the achievements that I've that I'm able to achieve in the future, I guess, in science. Um, so you'll you'll set up the Florida Research Institute in the. I bet that's the dream. That's everybody's <laughs> dream. That's every scientist's dream. I feel setting up your own institute. No, but I think the ability to give underserved populations sort of this opportunity that I never thought I would have had my entire life, you know, is something important to me. I recognize the lack of resources available to students who are just, you know, begging for opportunities in the Philippines. Um, so hopefully one day I'll have the energy and the resources to be able to do that um, and, and, you know, bring some Filipinos mm -hmm. abroad. Mm -hmm. well, so uh, this is something that, uh, you know, uh, uh, where you are, what the field that you operate in is a terribly complicated one. And so uh, I'm going to do something that lawyers are not known for. And I am going to give you the opportunity to make me look stupid. Uh, so your disciplines are uh, translational medicine and pathology for the benefit of the uninitiated. Do you mind walking us through what those are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. This is science communication 101, folks. Um, every scientist struggles with this. But I think translational medicine and pathology, you know, the, these are two very broad concepts. And translation medicine, translational medicine, for the listeners here, for just the general audience, think of it as, um, you know, in science, when we do research, there's something considered as basic science research. OK, um, maybe you're thinking about being on the bench, meaning just imagine scientists working tire tirelessly on the bench, pipetting things um, versus translational medicine. After we work in the lab, what happens next? So what? You discovered something. That's where translational medicine can sometimes um, come in and offer sort of like this tunnel or this bridge um, or in other words, you know, bridging the gap from bench work to clinical science or clinical medicine or to the bedside, as some people would say. Um, so that is translational medicine, translating discoveries made in the lab and then um, turning them into medicine that we can give to patients. Now, pathology is just, you know, basically the study of all human diseases. 
Um, so sort of these two intersections, these two broad fields come together in my current research, right, um, where I study human diseases, and we can go into more detail um, as we go along there. Mm. I think I think you said earlier uh, that uh, you are in the field of stem cells. Uh, for, again, uh, for those who might not be so familiar, do you mind explaining what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So... Stem cells, simply put, are basically cells that have the ability to do two main things, as people will put it. A, it's to differentiate or become um, various cell types of your body. That's why people often think about them as the magical cells. These cells can become any cell type you want them to be, in essence, okay? And most importantly, these cells have the capacity for self-renewal. Self-renewal is basically... Um, you know, stem cells being able to divide to make more stem cells, okay? So they're like, they're an unlimited pool of cells that can become anything you want them to become. So that's kind of magical if you think about it, right? Especially when you think about diseases where you're losing cells, right? So that's how you're able to replace cells in essence, um, and obviously stem cell therapy, you know, gained, gained a lot of buzz when, you know, Unfortunately, in recent years or for the past few decades, doctors um, in various parts of the world have, have started illegal, what we call illegal medical tourism, where you sort of, to some extent, you can say people are being extorted, um, right, for their money, like mostly affluent families who are so desperate for a cure, right? And, you know, they hear about, oh, stem cells, you know what they do, they're like sort of magical, they cure everything. Um, so unfortunately, it's been twisted into something that is really not where we are at today. Um, that is the goal to treat various diseases, but we're we're just not right there yet. Um, so, so. Mm -hmm. are, are the clinical techniques for stem cells at the point where they can be used to treat diseases yet? Or is, is it still in its infancy where, you know, uh, to, to borrow a phrase earlier, like the translational medicine hasn't gotten it to a point where it's clinically applicable yet? Oh no, we're definitely we're definitely at an inflection point. I would I would call it because a lot of therapies, um, there's a lot of startups around stem cell therapies, um, and a lot of those cell therapies I would say are in clinical trials as we speak. Um, the most common one of them is for the treatment of type one diabetes, for example, um, where you have certain cells called beta cells that we can make from human stem cells. Um, to treat patients who are suffering from type 1 diabetes and losing those beta cells. Um, and that's currently in clinical trials in patients right now. Um, so really the results of those trials will dictate sort of the next 10 years and sort of like, you know, what is the next generation medicine that we're able to offer these patients that are suffering for life, um, you know, where insulin is no longer enough. You you mentioned the startup space. So like biotechnology firms in the U.S. have like access to a lot of funding. So is that a possible career trajectory to you or is there you do you want to remain in the realm of research? Yeah, that's a great question. I was going to say that for like, you know, what's my five year plan is everybody love to ask a Ph.D. student. Um, but I uh, in all honesty, I am extremely uh, excited about biotech um, and especially the startup space and Harvard has, you know, they, Harvard provides a lot of resources like incubator spaces for students to, you know, maybe cultivate early 
um, sort of startup ideas um, before transitioning sort of into, you know, the bigger, bigger biotech um, space. So it's, it's, it's in, it's in, you know, it's in the, in the cloud here and I'm, I'm constantly thinking about it, but the thing to consider about, you know, when starting your own startup or when, you know, when becoming a founder of your own startup, you have to realize that you need an idea and a good product at the end. Um, and you just got to be lucky. So, you know, and obviously you need funding. So it's, yeah, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm heavily considering, um, aside from becoming a professor and, and owning my own lab, I would say. But offhand, I, I think not having diabetes, that's a pretty damn good product. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, I think if, like, because the issues when you're at a certain level in your field and like, so being a PhD, you're at the very precipice of the field, right? You're at the edge of the field in terms of the issues that you confront. So you, you, your areas of research are aging, cell death and metabolism. So what do the issues look like uh, when you're that deep into your specialization? Yeah, it's actually interesting. I think I should preface this sort of with um, the, the only reason why my, well, not the only reason, but a major reason why I'm currently pursuing sort of like research that is within the intersection between these three big fields is that I'm actually a co-mentored PhD student such that, again, um, I'm, I'm sort of like in a unique uh, space where I am co-mentored by two people with two different expertise that just sort of heavily um, uh, sort of relies upon these three fields. Um, and sort of the problem that I am currently looking at, you know, these are three broad fields here. And, and one of the, the many projects that I'm currently working on uh, involves investigating sort of aging brain vasculature. And, and you know, Ram, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to break this apart for you or for the listeners just so they don't have to hold their breath and be like, the aging brain vasculature, what the heck is that? Go right ahead, go right ahead. Um, so let's, <laughs> let's dig deep into this, you know. Um, and if you think about aging, right, we're all aging and there's, you know, there's no stopping that, unfortunately. There's no fountain of youth that I can give you right now. Um, however... There is a way to age gracefully, as we like to call it in science, and there is a way to maybe um, prevent or slow down this process we call aging, right? Um, and my project basically investigates how can we prevent sort of this vascular dysfunction within the brain? Um, and with that also translates to how can we prevent getting dementia, getting Alzheimer's disease, you know, getting any neurological um, neuro, I guess, sorry, neurodegenerative diseases as we age. Like, how can we prevent that? And sort of my my research really answers this huge problem. Are we able to reverse it? If so, how can we do it? Um, and I'm using this using both. Um, I, I, and I'm, you know, currently um, conducting experiments in both mice and humans in order to answer this really complex question, to be honest, you know, and, and then cell death comes into play here where I'm just like, can we stop death of these cells, of your neurons, of your vasculature in general? Will that help the patient? You know, will, will we see improvement in health overall? Um, and metabolism also plays a role. Can we improve, you know, the metabolism of these cells? Can we make them younger? or younger like, per se. 
Um, so this this is sort of like my research <laughs> within a snowball, I would say. We can definitely go deeper, but um, I hope now the, 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 the listeners can understand sort of this huge problem that we're currently dealing with, right? Um, and, and you might know, you know, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, that's like very devastating diseases, not only for the patient, but also for families, right? And if there's a way to prevent that using stem cell therapy, right, using drugs, um, then best believe, you know, scientists are on their way to, to discover that. Actually, one weirdly, one of the reasons why I became a lawyer is because I am deathly afraid of Alzheimer's. And oh, boy. I, and uh, so I noticed like lawyers would get really old, but they'd still remain sharp. So I'm like, okay, whatever that is, I want some of that. <laughs> so weirdly, weirdly, the, one of the reasons why I got into the law, the law was uh, medical. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I just wanted to call attention to one one tiny thing. And then uh, we'll go deeper into uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So uh, you you mentioned that you're uh, conducting experiments on humans. So that 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 for me is kind of interesting. What do, what do the experiments on humans look like when you're at the point where you know you're doing the bench work and it, you haven't you know you're you're not exactly uh, experimenting with the clinical therapy just yet. So what yeah. what, what what kind of experiments do you do? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I need to clarify that. Um, I, I don't do it on humans. I do it in a human model system. And and so to speak, you know, that that means um, that's where the human stem cells, um, that's where human stem cell models come in. So I personally work with what's called human induced pluripotent stem cells. I know, say that 10 times over, right? Um, but it's it's a it's a type of stem cell. Uh, that we're able to use in the lab in order to still investigate different processes that goes on within the human body, but this time in a dish, right? So, so I can actually take your stem cells, Rami, and make human-induced um, purple and stem cells out of your skin, for example, and I can perturb things in your cells without having to touch you, right? Um, now there are caveats to that, right? Because anything that happens inside the body is obviously different from what goes on in a dish, right? Um, obviously when you take something out of a, of a native niche, say for example, um, it changes things, right? So, so this is what I mean, man. I work with human, um, model systems, but unfortunately we can't, you know, there are, there are regulations against, uh, you just, you know, experimenting with humans, <laughs> unfortunately. And, uh, well, if ever the regulations get too frustrating, you can always just go to North Korea and they, they're probably a lot more receptive to ah. human experimentation. <laughs> I don't think the U.S. government will be too happy to hear this. <laughs> it's okay. It's just a joke, Mr. Uncle Sam. It's just a joke. Uncle Sam. Um, Uncle Joe. Yeah. Uncle Joe. Uh, no, it's a... Uh, how do I how do I say this? So uh, the kind of stem cells you work with, uh, are you familiar with uh, the person of Henrietta Lacks by any chance? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and and no, we don't work with her stem cells. So I have to I have to say that a lot of the um, so so I I had mentioned this very briefly, but let's just backtrack a little bit. So there's different types of stem cells. Um, mm -hmm. And 
sort of, you know, Henrietta Lacks, actually, um, she, she, she was famous because it is the, she was the source of a cell line called the HeLa cell line, which is widely used within the cancer biology field, right? It was the first um, immortalized human cell line, right? And it, 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 I mean, it serves still today as a cell model for various types of science. Um, mm. Now, the thing with stem cells, um, which is quite different from an immortalized cell line, is that, you know, I mentioned there is the embryonic stem cell, or the ESC, um, as you can imagine, the more controversial one. And then you have the human-induced peripotent stem cell, which was recently discovered. Um, in, um, in, in fact, yeah, recently discovered by Shinya Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize for it, um, where we can now use a stem cell model that is less controversial in the sense that, you know, um, the, the whole notion of using embryos for basic science research or translational medicine is out of the picture. Um, so, so these are, you know, these are three very different things. You have the immortalized cell line, you have the stem cell line from embryos, and then now you have the stem cells just made in the lab um, that's, you know, directly from your skin or something. Um, Thank you for curing me of my affliction of ignorance. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's because uh, to be honest, like these things go over my head. I, I honestly don't know what they what what they are before you explained it so succinctly just there. Uh, so, uh, do, do you mind, like, uh, where do you fall on, you know, uh, the? Well, obviously, you're biased, not because you're a PhD researcher. Uh, but uh, what is your opinion of the moral debate between the use of stem cells? Right, like uh, we don't, you don't have to give a particular stance, but you can maybe just characterize the debate as a whole, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, as you said, like all opinion um, that I that I state here, are my own. Um, I, from a personal point of view, I think that. If something can be used for the good of research, the good of humanity, and for the future of medicine, something that is game-changing, such as stem cell therapies, I would say that, you know, obviously proceed with caution and follow all rules and regulation that are instilled by different institutions and the government agencies in place. Um, yeah, go for it, right? I'm all for it. Um, but I, I have to clear sort of like this 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 misconception about stem cells. So everyone thinks, you know, when I first started research with stem cells, it was quite funny because um, people thought I was hacking babies every day, which is, which is no, that, that just doesn't happen. That's illegal, by the way. You can't just hack <laughs> babies or kill any human being for that, <laughs> for that matter. But um, people, the, the general public, this is, this is really where I have to say, Science communication has truly evolved over the past few years because of this reason. People think we're killing babies every day when that's not the case. In fact, all or, you know, most of the embryonic stem cell lines, right, at least used within within the U.S., right, um, have been cell lines that have uh, been established a long, long time ago. OK, so. So no new embryonic stem cell lines are currently being established. For human endospherical and stem cells, the less controversial one that I just told you about, 
or I'm going to refer to them as iPS cells, right? These cells, yeah, I can, I can, you know, take take a piece of your skin right now, and I can generate some iPS cells in the lab, and then I can use it for research. Um, as long as it is well documented, it goes through the proper tests and the regulatory um, paperwork that needs to be done. Um, so I think, you know, given the checks and balances we have in place with stem cell research, I think it should go on. And given that we have, you know, as a stem cell community produced data and sort of evidence, you know, collected throughout the past few years in terms of the promise that stem cell um, therapy holds for, you know, for medicine in general for the next few decades, it's it's honestly a game changer and it's unbelievable some of the signs that you see in some conferences, you know, behind closed doors, um, some unpublished data, I would say. So yeah, is that where they that's where they teach you the secret techniques for cutting up the babies? Sure. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to put it. <laughs> you have to get it under the uh, the the armpit. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but anyway, so um, how so you, we we we've kind of went on this tangent where I'm kind of more comfortable because we can talk about the ethics and I can somewhat relate. No, but uh, let's let's go back to where I'm right. completely clueless. Right. So, uh, you, how does uh, this your research into brain vasculature actually? Uh, how does brain vasculature specifically relate to uh, these uh, neurodegenerative diseases that you know your study aims to prevent or to cure? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question, and it's a question that I always have to address in in different talks that I give, and you know. Um, obviously, the listeners may or may not know that the brain vasculature is incredibly important um, in playing a role of protecting your brain and supplying nutrients to your brain, making sure that your brain is healthy, right? Um, and so once you develop vascular dysfunction, meaning uh the vasculature in your brain erupting, you know, or vasculature in your brain getting more sort of coat and coat leaky where it's no longer able to efficiently supply nutrients directly to cells of the brain. That's when you get problems. And there is evidence in the field in general that shows us that, yes, when you get vascular dysfunction, this actually um, sort of leads to neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's or maybe dementia. You know, a lot of these um, diseases all rely on the healthy state of your neurons. Okay. So it's sort of like very important to keep healthy. That is like the end, the, the end goal here. And presumably while you're young, right, you're, you're healthy and your vasculature is tight and it's able to really um, pump all the nutrients directly to, to, to cells of the brain, um, we sort of, you know, my research sort of covers, you know, well, how can we, how can we revert back, like the, uh, revert back to, to this young state, right? Despite being old, how can we do that? Can we mimic things um, while, you know, in, in the brain, in, in a young brain? that we see. And certainly you can do that. Um, and, and, and I can, I can probably tell you something gruesome 
ooh, spicy podcast here. Um, but there is this technique, uh, and quite educational, I would say. There's this technique in the lab um, or, or in the field that's being used. And the lab next door actually does this technique. And that's called stitching two mice together, but actually stitching two, both their vasculature together. So you can now imagine two mice being stitched together side by side with a vasculature that is attached to each other and how people within the aging field sort of um, uh, use this for is to see if young a young mouse attached to an old mouse, right? What does that do? Do we see rejuvenation in an old mouse? And in a young mouse, do we see sort of the like sort of an accelerated aging as as we can call it right um since they're seeing old blood right okay so that's that the gruesome part is over i'm not going to describe the technique obviously but <laughs> you get the picture right um and and sort of this is one of the technique to be able to understand you know like you know, how can young vasculature versus old vasculature make a difference when we look at models of Alzheimer's, of dementia, other neurodegenerative diseases? Um, so there you go, Rami. I'm sorry. I've, okay. I've talked about two things being stitched together right now. No, I mean, you, now, now I completely understand why they think you cut up babies. <laughs> that's, that's morbid. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so how do I put this? Uh, is there is there a result of that experiment, or like do we know what happens, or uh, is it still you know they're still they're still they're still conducting the experiment? Yes, yeah, stay tuned um, for my lab's next publication. Um, no, but I'll give I'll I'll spice this podcast even even more. Um, so a preview to our data that is unpublished currently shows us that there are in fact a whole lot of changes going on in all of the cell types in the brain, not just in the vasculature of the brain. Um, and, and in fact, this also involves, you know, beyond uh, cell death, beyond metabolism. We also see things happening with the immune system, with immune cell types talking. So literally everything is going crazy when you're aging. Isn't that crazy? Like, obviously a very turbulent environment, you can just imagine for the cells, is no good. Um, and we're trying to bring it back to homeostasis, you know, sort of at a steady state where, okay, um, you know, they're young again, they're fresh, and they're seeing the nutrients they should see. Um, so stay tuned for the next publication. And, you know, like, obviously, I'll be happy to share that with you in the future. Uh, so uh, is, 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 the, is the degradation of the brain vasculature, like, would you say it's a one-to-one -one in terms of causation, or is it one of many things? I think you touched on it in your previous yeah. answer, but I just wanted to have it be clear. It's one of many things. And mm -hmm. do we know exactly if, you know, if you get brain vascular dysfunction, will you absolutely get Alzheimer's? We don't know. We don't mm -hmm. know yet. But given the recent evidence that have come out in, in, in other labs, for example, the answer might be maybe, but, you know, in science, it's never an all or nothing kind of game. Um, you know, in all diseases, Remy, there are patients, there are populations of patients that will always be the exception to the rule. And those patients are interesting for scientists. Um, you mm -hmm. know, you can experiment 
you, you can sort of take IPSLs again. This let's this is sort of a theme now. If you if you can catch on to it, we can take their IPSLs and see what is protecting those patients from developing X disease, right? Can mm. we test that in the lab? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And what mm. makes those patients protected? Like, why are they Superman? Why can't everybody be Superman, right? Um, and those are some of the interesting questions we deal with because we do want to unravel those mysteries. <laughs> well, the, the, when you mentioned these patients that are like the exception to the rule, I really remember whenever I'd be up in the mountains in Cebu, like you'd always catch like these old people who are like just smoking up rolled leaves of yeah. tobacco. <laughs> and then you ask them like, how old are you? It's like, uh, I'm, like I'm 80. <laughs> and I'm just like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. like no filter, just the leaves. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I took my research to the Philippines. That's like, see, they're interesting right there. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, with the mechanism of action, right, of uh, the possible drugs that you might concoct, sure. and the way that these uh, diseases develop in people, uh, do you think that it's possible to uh, create a kind of fountain of youth where uh, you can actually prevent aging altogether. Because, you know, uh, when we talk about these maladies, when we talk about these sicknesses, uh, the chances of them go up exponentially because of ad ad advanced age, right? Is that something we can even work towards or is that just not on the table entirely? Yeah, absolutely. So great question. I think I think for the listeners, you know, let, let's make this part clear. Can I stop aging? Can we scientists stop aging altogether? Unfortunately, no, you know, like it's just, it's it's a cycle. It's, yeah, it's a cycle of life. Um, you know, you live and eventually you, you know, cells die, unfortunately. Um, and there is a, there, there is a point where everything ends, you know, but, mm. but like I told you, I want to reiterate this. Can we age more gracefully? Meaning, can I still enjoy my 80s, 90s, 100s, you know, even if you're lucky? Um, yes, maybe. And that is where aging research really comes into play here, right? Um, because like you you mentioned, Rami, you know, something about can we make a cocktail of drugs, maybe, you know, somewhat, um, you know, uh, like the fountain of youth. Uh, I hate using the word fountain of youth. Uh, especially because scientists know that doesn't exist. Um, but if it makes you comfortable to think about it that way, then yes. Um, you know, sort of. So my one of my mentors is actually the uh, the director of of the screening facility. The screening facility basically screens for drugs uh, in mm. a dish um, to sort of find different targets in ways where we can ameliorate sort of like uh, the dysfunction we see in a dish. Right. Um, and, you know, he's also big in biotech. So translation of medicine is his thing and discovering drugs, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to find. I'm trying to find you ways in which I can prevent, um, may it be in a drug form, may it be in a cell therapy form, right? Um, just to prevent altogether vascular dysfunction. Um, so, so if I can make a cocktail, that would be easier if you think about it, right? in terms of giving these to patients, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I have to mention, cell therapy, every time you think about stem cells becoming a therapy, it's an incredibly expensive therapy altogether. Um, mm -hmm. And you wanna, 
you want to think about these things, right? As a scientist, I think about how are these, how are my discoveries or how are, you know, if, if one day I make a drug, how are they going to be accessible to the public? I don't just want the elite top 1% to, to, you know, take advantage of my discoveries, right? Like the, the purpose or the, the mission was to make this available to as many people as possible, um, to cure as many lives as possible. Um, so those are things that you think about, you know, whether A, you give drugs or B, you give cells. So simply put. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, my, my stance on it, and this is coming from a very thoroughly non-scientist perspective, has always been, you know, there's no pill uh, cure for getting hit by a bus. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, the, like death will always be inherent to in the human existence. And so, you know, like if we if you live a bit longer, you just be thankful, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so what are some of the interesting things, right, that you've been able to uh, discover, right, as you get deeper and deeper into the weeds on uh, vascular dysfunction? Yeah. Unfortunately, you caught me at like a very early time during my during my PhD. And, and you know, I'm actually pretty new to this field. Um, but some of the most preliminary um, things that we're seeing, for example, is, you know, if you promote um, sort of the growth of vasculature in sort of an aged model, in an aged sort of like an old mouse, right? If I were to add more vasculature in general to the brain of an old mouse, do do their, um, you know, like, does does everything else improve? Does their health overall, are, are, are they going to do better? The answer there is, is, is yes, based on recent evidence. Um, but, you know, I'm a careful scientist, so I always say, maybe, we'll see. We'll see with, you know, repeated experiments, and we'll see with verified experiments using human um, cells as well, right? Um, and these are very, very preliminary discoveries. Um, you can ask me about my previous research, obviously, which is completely different from what I'm doing today. Um, but I've sort of fueled, you know, the, the way I think about my research today, actually. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think you're hinting that I should ask you, like, like how like how your previous <laughs> research has gone. Uh, so how, how has your previous <laughs> research gone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my previous research was m mostly studying various metabolic diseases. What does that mean? Well, cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and obesity. Um, those are what we've been into metabolic diseases, okay? Um, so in my previous research, for example, where I published um, um, papers on, you know, I, along with a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, in my former lab, uh, discovered sort of a gene, okay, that, um, I was alluding to this earlier, by the way, um, it, we were able to discover a gene that had protected, for some reason, uh, patients who had type 2 diabetes from developing cardiovascular disease. Now, for the listeners and for you, Rami, when you develop type 2 diabetes, you almost always will develop cardiovascular disease, aka you might die of a heart attack before you even die of the diabetes, or you might develop plaques, right, while having diabetes. This leads to all the complications. If you, if you ever come across a family member who's type 2 diabetes, right, um, they almost always will also take pills for their heart problems. 
Um, and sadly, this is sort of just, you know, this is just the, the fate of, of patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, so, so I, yeah, so, so that research, you know, again, using human iPS cells, we were able to dissect why is it that the patients who were the exceptions to the rule were protected? What was it about them, you know? Um, when they've lived with type 2 diabetes, for some of them, you know, we had older patients that we took human iPS cells from, um, and we were able to discover, oh my goodness, like these guys ha had just um, expressed a certain gene that somehow was like a shield um, to them. Mm -hmm. So that work mm -hmm. is, is fully published and accessible. So, um, you know, again, those are one of the things where I would say, um, you know, is, is it now going to be a target for, for a drug or something? Potentially, um, you know, unfortunately, I switched fields and and that work is now sort of in my previous life. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but so let's just say, for example, that your your work now yields positive results, like you, you conclude with uh, a high degree of certainty that uh, brain vasculature and the quality of brain vasculature relates directly with degenerative diseases. Right. Yeah. Uh, and what kind of questions will that open up for other researchers in your field? Well, uh, wow, that's a that's a really tough one. And I think um, the questions it will open up is whether or not it is only the vasculature playing a role overall in, you know, sort of giving rise to all of these other neurodegenerative diseases, right? Um, the, the question then becomes, what is the vasculature really talking to? Um, meaning, what other cell types is it communicating with, right? Does it, when, when it becomes dysfunctional, does that immediately mean that those other cell types becomes dysfunctional, right? Um, so, so, so I think those are some of the questions that we, we need to be able to answer in the field. And, and really, it will open up, you know, sort of, Again, digging deeper into the how do we prevent it? I mentioned to you, we can make cocktails of drugs, right, to maybe prevent the vasculature. But is is there only one way, you know, one target? Can there be multiple targets, right? Are there multiple subpopulations of patients, right, that present with the with these um, neurodegenerative diseases differently, right? Um and most likely, it will be a heterogeneous population, I have to say. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. these are some of the major questions. Um, and, and no doubt, I mean, I'm not going to be able to, to answer all these questions in one PhD. Um, mm -hmm. So you plan to go for multiple PhDs? Oh, no, no, no. no. I'm not that crazy. <laughs> no offense to uh, four PhDs, by the way. Some people do that. <laughs> no, but I think even those people will readily admit, yes, there is something wrong with me. <laughs> So uh, you're, you're, the research that you do is sort of like carries this theme. So you previously were just studying uh, metabolic diseases and now right. you do uh, neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, you know, these are uh, like related fields. Like how did you wind up in, these, in this field and like uh, how are they related to each other, right? Like how, how do your fields of study relate to each other? Yeah. Yeah. I think the only... You know, sort of the 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 main link I would say is that I used to study 
Um, peripheral vasculature, when I say peripheral vasculature, is vasculature that is everywhere else around the body except the brain. And then now, today, I study specifically the brain vasculature, which is very different from peripheral vasculature. And again, that can be for a different time um, that we can discuss. But just so you know, those are two very different things. Um, in, in, in a sense, um, not that it comprises of different cell types, but also, you know, it's just function. When we talk about function, it's very different. Um, so the way I have to think about it now within the brain is, is quite different um, from the way I have to think about it um, in my previous research. And I think another point of connection is my passion for metabolism. I told you, right? I studied metabolic diseases. Metabolism is everywhere. It is in every cell type of the body. It plays a major role in keeping you healthy. So today, I'm trying to pull in the lessons that I've learned from my previous research into like sort of my current problem. What can I pull from the lessons learned in metabolism um, in the way I approach sort of the problem that I have today? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, this is and this is more of like a capitalistic kind of question. Uh, it's more of a greedy question. So I'm just right. wondering, like as a lawyer, right, outside looking in, like one of my first questions when looking at your uh, situation is who owns the intellectual property that you produce while you're a research fellow and uh, now is a PhD student? Thankfully, a really easy question. Harvard, of course. Harvard owns the IP to everything we discover in the lab, as simply put. Um, okay, so and you you got to keep a few things uh, in the notebook that's under your bed then, right? <laughs> we can publish this podcast anymore. They know my secret now. You know, obviously she's joking. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am under strict instructions to say that. <laughs> uh, wait, sorry. Uh, Q, do you mind? Like, I just have to run to the bathroom. I really need to be. BRB. <laughs> It's like one of my bad habits from law school is to pound three cups of coffee in the morning. I don't blame you. I do the same, to be honest. <laughs> like uh, a friend of mine was talking to me about, uh, you know, these tiny uh, artisanal coffee packets where they're like 100 grams long. And I'm just like, I am not interested. That's not enough coffee. <laughs> I need five shots of espresso, stat. That's you. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like it's like you know, like if like that's one day, you know, like I'm not gonna like. Do lawyers drink a lot of coffee these days? No, because it's like when you're in when you're in law school, you you pick up coffee as a thing, and then uh, like imagine the book, like they come to you with like 500 pages of like really dry, dense material, and then they go, yeah, we're gonna discuss this tomorrow, and like we're not just gonna discuss it, like we're gonna call you, like the discussion depends on your participation, right? The professor does zero lecture, right. and then he's just like, Horani, please stand up. <laughs> okay, what happened in the case of Cruz versus TENR? <laughs> and then that, that case is like 100 plus pages long, and you're like, oh, and then like it's a per curiam decision, which means like, God. oh, uh, like each justice had an opinion, and each justice has a different opinion. <laughs> and oh. then, and then, and then, like you, you're like, okay. The only way I can read the whole thing before showing up the following day is I don't sleep. And uh, uh, the only way that happens is if, like, with with like a clinical intervention or like a pharmacological intervention. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> Which uh, is caffeine in this case. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, is is that is that something you find yourself having to do also? Like, is that is that like part of your life as a scientist? Caffeine. <laughs> caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. It's also, I have to say, it's not just, you know, for the sake of, oh, I, I need to stay up. It's also um, a me. I'm sure you've, you've, you've seen scientists and a lot of, a lot of us have very interesting personalities, some more introverted than others. So sometimes it's a way to socialize, like socializing over coffee, talking about science over coffee. Um, mm-hmm. it, it eases the nerves and it, it breaks a barrier, you know. So mm-hmm. yes, we drink a well, lot of. Coffee. Well, they say that the the enlightenment, you know, it happened because of the coffee shops that were created in France, right? Yeah. Like they, it was really just people coming together and taking part of a drug that had never been given to the population before, right? It was like a clinical study almost, where like did it yeah. encourage irrational thinking? And it did, and then now we have the enlightenment. That's that's a theory at least, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Sounds sounds real to me. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I have to, I have to be able to say something because you sound so smart. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, now we can, we can probably ease off from the science, unless there's something that you, you want to like cover really quickly, right? Like uh, about like maybe something you miss or something else that you'd like to share. But like, I'd like to really get into more of the meat and potatoes of what makes you a person, if that's all right. Yeah. So, I feel those questions uh, are harder, Rami. So these questions are just getting harder and harder. <laughs> I know, but I, I, I wouldn't what ask a lawyer. questions. You're, you're not <laughs> thrilling me. Oh, don't worry. There's no judge here, so he won't order you to answer the question if I ask a difficult one. Uh, so what were some of the? So you're a woman of in you're a woman uh, in the state. You would be called a woman of color, right? Right. Uh, in the sciences, like a traditionally very male-dominated field, right? So, could you outline like what the challenges were for someone in your position going into these incredibly influential institutions? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, um, as you said, right? Uh, being a woman in itself, you know. Luckily for me, I have to say though, um, it was it was never a barrier. Or maybe correction, I never made it a barrier, right? There is there there is a difference, and and obviously, you know, you run you run across colleagues or people that you know might sometimes disrespect you, you know, and maybe think less of you, right? Because you know, I'm not particularly tall, as you might recall. I'm still petite, Rami, so that that thing didn't change. Um, but you know, it's like, oh, she looks young. You know, she's a female, and like, you know, um, all these factors. And maybe in in some cases, if you're asking me, you know, like, have you felt, you know, sort of um, belittled or like just just um, disregarded in some sense, right? When when you've offered your opinion, that always happens, right? But I think you also have to approach it with the right personality, I would say. And again, this is a very, very touchy subject, obviously, rightfully so. And I think for me, I sort of try to, I knew, I knew all of these challenges were going to come my way, but I was ready to fight all of them. So maybe at some point I just didn't realize I was constantly fighting all these challenges. But to be honest, though, I have been so lucky to this day where every lab that I have been in have been so welcoming and I have had 
um, you know, very supportive mentors. And I think that, you know, that really played a, a big difference in my experience overall. Um, and certainly my Harvard experience is not the exact same Harvard experience as any other grad student. No. You know, we recognize, obviously, the inequality between experiences, uh, you know, from student to student within the Harvard community, right? Um, and as a Filipino, I have to say, going into stem cell research, I also have to recognize that we're just a group that's not represented in science overall here, right? Mm -hmm. I literally did not meet any other Filipino at Harvard, like, until my... I don't know, my third year or fourth year, it was, it was a long time. Um, and even so, I never met anyone like me, you know, like straight out from Cebu, you know, born in the Philippines, you know, maybe we're talking Filipino Americans, right? Um, so yeah, those are just some of the challenges where it's like, man, I, you know, like really, I was born in a, in a third world country. I, I, don't, I don't know what to say about that. Like, you know, where a lot of people would also question sort of like, so where are you really from? Or like, how can you speak English? You know, you know, they're not challenges per se, but, you know, obviously they, they do have an effect. Right. Um, but thankfully, I really I really want to reiterate this, that, you know, having supportive mentors in this extremely competitive career trajectory is so important. And it helped me, I think, navigate my way really well um, to avoid any of these, you know, sort of what do you say? Challenges, I guess. Well, uh, you know, a friend of mine, when I was asking him, like, do you feel discrimination in your life as a grad student? His response was, no, there's absolutely no discrimination at all. We're all treated like slaves. So it's equally bad across the board. Uh, uh, so... Uh, well, that's that's good to know, no? Because I, I really like uh, your point of like you don't even realize, right? Like some of these things were obstacles at the time you were going through them, right? right? Because like a lot of uh, what prevents people from succeeding at those higher levels, it's it's really a mental game, and some people will actively play that game against you. But right. I would say a large chunk of it is you playing that game against yourself, right? So yeah. like even me, for example, like as a lawyer here in Cebu. Right. You see like a lawyer who's like 10 years your senior and then you assume uh, that this person is better than you. Right. right. And that's like and, and in that in that sense, you've already lost and you can't afford to play into that. Um, uh, we might call it the padrino system or uh, we might call it, you know, that that general respect for elders that Filipinos have. Right. And uh, it just speaks to the universality of that principle of like, you know what, sometimes if you don't pay attention to it, it's easier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I think that's the Filipino trade in me, like that, that sort of like took overdrive, you know, to some extent. It's like, ah, whatever. You know, it's like, bala. <laughs> like, you know, like, like as Filipinos would say, ah, bala, like whatever, you know, like, let's just, let's, let's move forward. Keep going, you know. And I think that resilience that I had built over the years, you know, obviously with the life events that had happened to me and, you know, just being Filipino in general, Filipinos are so resilient, man. Like, it's just, it's crazy. Um, and, and yeah, like, I'm, I'm super proud to have that trait because maybe it helped me cope without me knowing, you know, um, mm -hmm. and helped me fight all of these, you know, people who's trying to get in my way kind of thing. So, well, if you, if you don't mind, though, because actually, like, this is what people uh, might not know so well about you. 
uh, is that you are the daughter of a lawyer here in Cebu, right? right? And so that contributed to a lot about, you know, these challenges that you articulate very briefly. Do you mind sharing what that life was like, right? If, if, if you don't want, it's okay, and I'll proceed to my next question. But, you know, it's so important, like, how these things have shaped you, I think. So people oh, yeah. get a better understanding. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, not too long ago, my dad passed away uh, from cancer, and you know, I I am the youngest of a of, of ten, uh, a large large family, um, where you know my dad was the um, you know sort of uh, he was he was like you know, the ivory tower of my family. And, and he held everybody together and kept everybody sane. Most importantly, kept everybody sane and prevented all of us from fighting. But um, I sort of, it was sort of a big life change. When you go through a life change like that, like a death of a parent or of a sibling, that changes you as a person and your mentality. And it builds, like I said, resilience. Um, and, you know, after my dad passed away, I sort of changed as a person and I noticed it myself. It wasn't just my friends, you know, who told me. I actually noticed it first where I built sort of this mentality where everyone's out to get me now. I lost one parent and, you know, I no longer have a dad and my dad always protected me from every single thing, every single thing you could think about, every problem life had thrown at me. My dad was there to solve it with me. Um, but now I no longer have that person. And so just when he passed away, I sort of thought about it like, crap, I'm on my own. I mean, sure, I had my mom, but you can just imagine, you know, like she she was also going through some life changes. Right. Like uh, like, under, you know, understandably, um, you know, she lost her life partner. So the way I coped with this, like I literally became like not a robot, but but just a stronger person. Um, so any challenge that came my way, I would like literally punch it in the face and just <laughs> move on. Um, I built that sort of attitude. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think it helped because, you know, um, for lack of better term, like I, I, I took, I took nothing from, from, from anyone. Like I, I didn't take anything, you know, sort of that people would give, give in front of me. I didn't take crap from anyone. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that book by Angela Druckworth. It's called uh, Grit. Like they, oh, yeah. she explains. Uh, uh, she explains that you know, like you, you have to have that mindset, and sometimes that mindset is given yeah. to you uh, by your parents, the way that they articulate things. So I'd imagine like the way that your father treated you composed like a large part of like the resilience that you now display, right? And it's so important to remember that we are the product of our upbringing. There's even there's an even more poignant book that I read. It's called, and this is, I read the book quite some time ago now. It's called The Power of Stress, right? I I, I think that's the, I know it was, it was written by a Dr. McGonagall. And she, she talks about how, you know, these negative, these adverse experiences that, you know, even, even to the extent of trauma, like her study was specifically about the effect of the uh, sexual abuse victims trauma on them. And she found that in a lot of the instances, right, not all of them, of course, uh, these people actually displayed more uh, grit, more desire to succeed as a consequence, because it was that incredibly difficult life event that caused them to, like, take ownership of this thing of their lives. And it made them uh, become even more agents of their own success. Right. Right. Uh, And that speaks exactly to what you're talking about, I think. Right. Exactly. So, Mm. So, uh, 
Why do you think, uh, and this is, this is, you know, we, we said it at the start of the episode, and this is something, you know, I just wanted to say towards the end, was like, you, you probably don't think you could do the kind of research you do in the Philippines. Uh, and there are very obvious reasons why that is the case, but just so it came from someone who is in the position to be sure. able to do those things, why I, do you too. think that is the case? <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, Ram, it all comes down to money. Uh, funding, you know, funding for research, um, you know, you, you can't build opportunity out of thin air, unfortunately, and research and science in general needs funding um, for it to, to be productive. Um, and, and, you know, that I, I, I think that that's one of the major things, but also, you know, maybe, maybe early stage training, um, sort of just, you know, in the Philippines, when we were in high school, I mean, I don't know about you, maybe I, I always think back to this, to be honest, like, did I miss something, you know, like, did I miss a, an announcement or something? <laughs> like, was there ever a science retreat? Was there ever, like, a national science bowl that we could have trained for? Or, like, you know, just, like, opportunities for us to be at the bench, you know? Sure, we had some lab science um, courses, but, you know, if you look at um, the American curriculum of high schoolers, you know, they are exposed to a lot of opportunities, you know, beyond academia. I mean, some of some of the biotech companies even have, you know, internships and programs for high schoolers here, really just exposing them. Right. The more you're exposed to something, the more inclined you're, um, you know, you are to say, you know, like, hey, you know, I'm kind of curious about science. Like, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll I'll do this in the future. Right. Um so, so I think I think that that definitely training and funding definitely plays a huge role. Um, mm-hmm. but. So, it, like, because it, it, even in the Philippines, like, there was this whole brouhaha like a few years ago, where like uh, the uh, a senator uh, who I will not name was because <laughs> uh, they have more expensive lawyers than me. Uh, <laughs> um, was actually called out like the Department of Agriculture for like the level of funding that they devoted to research, and then the implicit ap- accusation was like, "Ano ba yung pinanggagawa niyo sa research? What are you doing with your research budget?" And then kind of saying like, "Hoy, this is probably just being used for corruption, right?" And like it obviously the the research budget in the Philippines is probably nowhere near the research budget that exists in the U.S. No, so yeah. like. Even on that level, like we really question uh, what what we can. But um, what are some of the things that you know exist in the U.S.? Like, what are the ways by which government money can be put towards scientific research? And like, you know, like the government have that bare assurance that it's not being put towards, uh, uh, you know, misappropriated. I would say, let's sure, say that much. Sure, sure, or unethical alloc- allocation of research money. Um, yeah. Uh, well, first and foremost, the U.S., you know, a lot of, again, we're talking about checks and balances, a lot of rules and regulations to be followed within research and within the funding, um, you know, that goes into a particular research. So I, I'm going to name this super briefly. Um, and, and you know, some of the structures that are responsible for sort of like uh, making sure that we are, in fact, funding you know, the right science that needs to be funded um, in uh, uh, through our government agencies, um, there's there's two main ones. 
There is the National Science Foundation, that is the NSF, or there is the National Institutes of Health. I think in my very brief Google search, the Philippines also has an equivalent, obviously, right? Like this um, government agency that basically uh, dictates, you know, which which lab gets money, right, in the end from the government. Um, so because of these agencies, though, you know, different types of research across the board, we're not just talking stem cell research, we're talking agricultural research, we're talking, you know, engineering, bioengineering, right, um, to sustainability research, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these agencies actually look through applications from these labs, right, where labs can apply for grants, for example, um, and you can ask for money from the government. You can propose a project. So, for example, myself, right, I can propose, hey, look, I'm trying to um, prevent people from getting Alzheimer's in the future. Can you give me some money? I'm trying to, you know, study the brain. It's going to take some money. Here's the um, proposed budget, right? There's some finances that goes through it. Um, there's, there's like a, a ton of paperwork that you have to go through and submit to these government agencies, the NSF and the NIH, for example. And then they have a panel that looks through that. And then they're going to eventually make a decision and say, you know what, we think this research is actually pretty promising for basic science or translational medicine, and we might fund it. You know, we're, we're going to fund it because we think this might make waves um, within the coming years. And we think this research is important, right, mm. um, relative to, to obviously their, their priorities in research. So it's because of these agencies. Now, now let's move outside of government agencies, right? The U.S. doesn't only have a lot of money or a lot of funding for research because of the government agencies. A lot, something that I need to say is actually a lot of the stem cell research is tightly regulated, as you can imagine. So a lot of our funding comes from private donors or foundations, right? We've got a lot of billionaires. Um, and billionaires, what do they love to do? Building foundations um, to help research, um, you know, and, and help us sort of get to a point where we can make a drug and we can accelerate finding, you know, medicine for the loved ones, right? Because they can. Um, and that's great because funding sources um, like those actually is more um, sort of uh, open to, to a lot more things that we need to do in the lab, right? In government-funded projects, right, the things you purchase in the lab, the things you pay with government money has to be within the scope of what you had proposed you were going to do in the first place, okay? Mm -hmm. There's strict rules that you, have to that you have to follow. There's NIH rules exactly on what you can use your funding for. You can't buy an Audi or a BMW with your money. Unfortunately, you can't buy a lab mobile, right? But you can buy fancy lab equipment to maybe help your research um, reach completion. Um, so it's it's because of these like different sources of funding, I would say, is why there is such a vibrant, you know, sort of community of research here. Um, mm -hmm. So well, weirdly, like uh, uh, the, the general prosperity in the US has allowed it to be like kind of generous with its scientists. Is that, that's probably like, the, the the implication of so we have to like work on maybe making the Philippines more economically prosperous before we can devote resources to other things and uh, 
you are uh, uh, a foreign scientist, though, Q. And so, like, one of the questions that I wanted to ask was, there's this general, like, trend of xenophobia kind of in the U.S., at least based on the media that we get all the way out here, right? And uh, particularly, there's a lot of skepticism uh, with regard to foreign scientists. Because the implication being that foreign scientists are kind of uh, kind of being a way by which other countries can piggyback off you know, the prosperity of uh, the U.S., right? Uh, what do you think of that, being a foreign scientist and being, uh, you know, subject to that kind of discourse? Right. Um, I I think it's bogus. Um, <laughs> sorry, but it's, uh, you know, we talk about diversity a lot in this country um, and and in all lessons in paper, I am an American scientist. Um, but, but you know, we talk a lot about diversity. Um, it's easy to talk about it. It's hard to practice it. So every time people, you know, feel sort of um, hesitant to take in all these international, you know, and really eager scientists, right, to conduct research here, um, it, it's sort of mind boggling to me, to be honest. It's, it's just like, you know, we want to promote more diversity within our scientific research community within the U.S., and yet we feel such, you know, distrust towards these these foreign nationals where we think they're just going to go back and, and, and steal the data or take the data they got here. Well, newsflash, science is all about collaboration, and nothing stays within this country. Science is global, right? Um, and science is very collaborative to begin with. Um, so, you know... I, I think that it's it's definitely, you know, a good thing that we have people from all around the world learning the techniques. And this is a way for us to advance as a field in general. Right. If only American scientists are advancing and learning the techniques. Right. And we look at the rest of the world like, oh, the rest of the world isn't catching up. Well, guess what? Because maybe you're trying to hinder, you know, some of their their students, their intellectual um people from learning all of these things in the U.S., right, and taking it back home. Like, that's the whole point. We all need to progress together. Um, so so that's really what I think about it. Um, mm. and, and, yeah, like, I, you know, science drives progress um, throughout the world, to be honest, in, in different things that we discover, right? Um, so... If you had some advice to give someone who is about to set on a set on a path towards a similar journey to the one you are taking, so let's say for example you're talking to like a Philippine science high student, like someone who is in high school now. Oh God! Don't take the journey I took. It was too tortuous. <laughs> but um, you know, I would say try to take the easy road. Road. That's what I tell them when they ask me, can I go to law school? And I'm like, no, don't do it. <laughs> it's don't not, do it's it. not too late for you. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, no, but let's say they were scientifically minded, right? And they wanted to set up on the journey towards, uh, you know, going to the U.S. And yes, that they were decided, notwithstanding the incredible difficulty, that they wanted to do it. What's some advice you would give to a person like that? I think, you know, the advice I would give is... Uh, is very cliche. Like I'll start with a cliche advice, and then I'll start with like more realistic advice. Cliche advice would be, you know, just go for it. Um, you know, sometimes I look back at my life and I, 
in some sense, it was like, well, yeah, you know, like you're in the U.S., like any opportunity, you know, is sort of up for grabs for you. But but really, no, it was I I only wanted to become a medical doctor. I only I say only no offense, Ray. Uh, I just I just (laughs) no. but um, I, I, I had a very typical path. I never knew I wanted to become, you know, a scientist, but here I am. Um, and that's because I took chances, right? And I I took chances, but I was also willing to face the consequences. So I think advice that I would give is, you know, when people say jump, just go. Jump, just go, but um, map out some sort of backup plan. Map out sort of where you're going to end up. What, what, so what next after you complete the next thing, right? Um, think about it a little bit, um, you know? Um, don't just dive into the sharks and then just be like, oh, well, I guess I died. You know, it's, it's always good to have a backup plan. And yes, it's my personality, but I'm telling you this from a, from a standpoint where I've had many backup plans. Um, and certainly in, 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 in very specific situations, I've had to use those, right? Um, but if the opportunity arises and you can go for it and nothing else is standing in your way, I would say go do it. Um, that mm. is that is some real advice I'm, I'm going to give. But it's, you know, it's it's no walk in the park um, for anyone. Mm. So, uh, and this is usually the last question before I cap the podcast, right? Uh, and you, you kind of touched on it earlier when we talked about right. biotechnology. Um, where do you see yourself in five years? Okay. All right. I'll, 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 I'll give my, my generic answer. I'm just kidding. No, um, I guess in five years, I hope to be done and have already graduated from my PhD at Harvard. Um, you know, obviously be a published author, be a published first author of, of multiple papers from my research. Um, and then maybe have already started like in five years, I really hope I've already been, you know, I've already moved on to the next chapter of my career which will most likely be a postdoctoral fellowship if I stick to this academia train. Um, again, anything can happen in five years, but ultimately, if the opportunity arises, I will be in the job market to you know, apply for professorships and try to start my own lab and run my own lab. And mm-hmm. obviously, like, you know, at the same in parallel or maybe in an alternative universe, I could definitely you know, be a founder, be a scientific founder of my own startup. And then maybe I'll become, you know, uh, the bad, the bad, one of the bad guys, as people would call it, and then go to the dark side of, of what is called industry or, or biotech. Um, <laughs> but okay. we'll it, it, my Filipino listeners would probably be very disappointed if I did not ask you this question, because it's the question that people our age usually get, right? Kailan ka ba oh man you know definitely not um not during my phd um and yeah i guess we're getting old rami what about you when are you having kids um yeah no but you you will be one of the first to know for sure um Uh, but not anytime soon for me okay okay having babies is harder Okay, so to Kiwi's American friends who may be listening, uh, <laughs> I, I, underst- I understand the implicit uh, uh, sexism of that question, right? But you can't judge my culture. Don't trigger me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
No, okay. I consent to answering that question. It's totally fine. And it's like one of the most hilarious questions that moms and aunties ask. So. Yeah. Or, or yeah, it's right next to like, why did you get so fat? <laughs> I honestly think the way Filipino moms and parents or aunties just ask it is so different from any other culture that you just laugh at the way they're asking it. Why'd you get fat? It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> it's not even fat. It's just fat. I think you're like, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, and so with that, with that, with that, uh, Kiwi, uh, thank you for coming on my podcast. Like, we, I learned. Uh, I'm sure everyone who listens to this episode will learn a lot about science, and I hope a few people uh, take this episode and be inspired to pursue science, despite your warnings. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Thank you so much for the invitation, Rami, and yeah, for the listeners. You know, I hope you know science is on your mind now. So, I did my job as a scientist to communicate my science. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs>